step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height in the hat, put it all in the hat. Hi, this is Avram Rosenzweig, and welcome back to Hat Radio. This is episode 19, and I am deeply honored and very, very excited that my guest today is Rabbi Daniel Koropkin. How are you, Rabbi? I'm great. It's good to see you, Avram. Yeah, it's great to see you, too. Um, I really, really was excited to have you on the show because I think that you're a very courageous rabbi. I do. I think you're brave. And the reason I say that is because you're a newcomer to Toronto, by and large. You weren't born here. And you have the gumption, you have the wherewithal, if need be, to interact with other denominations, um, to speak to other Jews of different backgrounds. And, and I think ultimately to bring unity to the Jewish people that unfortunately we often don't do well. So again, thank you very much for joining us here. Thank you. And I appreciate your, your nice words. Sometimes I'm not sure whether it's courage or foolishness because sometimes fools rush in where other people are more cautious. So, um, but thanks. I appreciate that. Well, when do you think it's foolishness? Well, you know, I think that I have a tendency to, um, unfortunately, to be less than less than completely cautious in some of the things that I do. I think sometimes caution is a virtue. Sometimes it can be a hindrance, and I'm not sure that I've always found the right combination between the two. But um, I hope that uh, I'm judged at the end of my days for not only the mistakes but some of the good things that I've done too. So you are now the rabbi of the Bayat Synagogue, which is based off from uh, Yosef. It's uh, one of the largest Orthodox synagogues in North America. Right. What do you have, about 800 families? About 800 families, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you are about to become the president of the Rabbinical Council of America. If all goes well. Yeah, next month. Well, when you say if all goes well, why do you say that? Well, in theory, someone could challenge the, uh, the slate. Okay. But... It looks like things, it looks like, um, I don't think there are any challengers right now, so things should go hopefully well. You are a scholar, you are an author. Would you say that you're a specialist in the area of the Kuzari mysticism? Well, Kuzari is not mysticism. I would say that my area of focus is medieval Jewish philosophy and yeah. thought. Um, and um, I did study some mysticism, uh, early mystical thought in, um, in some of the Midrashim. I studied that in UCLA a few years back. So I have some knowledge of that as well. So just going back to what you said before that uh, sometimes it might be foolish what you do. Do you get in trouble? Um, I'm not sure what trouble means. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that um, overall I'm well liked in the congregation. Um, that doesn't mean that everyone likes me. If everyone liked me, that would be a problem. Because yeah. even the Talmud says yes. that uh, when a rabbi is universally liked, it's a sign that he's doing something wrong. Um, but do I get into trouble? 
um, again, define trouble. Does that mean that some people are unhappy with what I do? If that's the definition of trouble, I guess the answer is yes. Um, do I have critics online from both the right and the left? Yes. Um, but that's just the way it is. King Solomon said, there's no such thing as doing good and doing no evil. And what one of the great um, 19th century Musa rabbis once said was that you can lock yourself in a closet and you'll never do anything wrong, yes. but you'll never do anything good either. When you want to do something good in life, uh, invariably, you're going to step on some toes. You're going to make some mistakes. Do you feel badly when you step on toes? I do. Yeah. And um, the, the, the challenge is not dwelling on your past mistakes. Yeah. Because sometimes we can become so um, paralyzed by our, our past that it, it prevents us from moving forward. So whether it's a God-given mechanism or whether it's something that I work on, I try to move past the, um, the, the cringeworthy mistakes that I've made in the past so that I can move forward. So I'm curious. I, I ran an organization called Via Hafta. Uh, I'm now what's called the ambassador, which tells you that I'm getting old. <laughs> well, but you're also the best ambassador they could possibly have. That's very nice of you. Thank you. And I remember stepping outside of the box. I remember doing something which I construed as brave, and I was scared. I got scared. But often I would force myself to do things anyway, which may have been contrary to our community. It may have been criticizing our community. When you go to a conservative shul for a conference for a meeting. I don't think you go for services, right? No, I, I don't. As you a wouldn't general, do that? Well, I'm not sure what I would or wouldn't do depending on the circumstance. There right. are, there are I, I, I don't believe in, in setting uh, lines in the sand um, in general, unless there's a very clear halachic or legally Jewish definition of what's okay and what's not okay. Like I, I can tell you authoritatively that I will not eat pork. Right? Yes, yes. But but when it comes to issues that are more socially driven than legally driven, then I can't really tell you necessarily I will or won't do such a thing. So when you do something that you know, let's say the very, very right wing will attack you for, are you afraid inside? Usually not. You're not afraid? No, no, no it's not. I um, Look, I, I moved to Toronto from Los Angeles. I was already 48 years old. So I was... and leaving LA to come here was a involved a, a lot of sacrifice with family ties both my parents and my wife's parents are still in LA half of our kids are still in LA and so what my wife Karen and I decided or sort of like I told I said I turned to her one day and I said if we're going to do this I have to be Daniel Karapkin I'm not going to be someone else's rabbi yes and um and I think that that was a liberating um, and frightening prospect at the same time. Um, but I've tried I've tried my best to be true to what I believe, um, and I've also tried to be politically savvy to the best of my ability without sacrificing my core beliefs. Well, listen, you'd have to be wise. You would have to know how to manage a group of people, particularly rabbis in your new position as the president of the RCA. And that's not easy, is it? Sometimes I think I'm the last man standing to right. get the presidency at the RCA. It's not, it's not something, it's a lot, a lot of guys will, ta will pat you on the back and say, Yasher Koach, congratulations, and yeah. then they'll take a step back. So I'm not sure whether that means I've just been in this business long enough to rise 
naturally or uh, uh, so I, I really don't see myself uh, having uh, uh, achieved the presidency other than just sticking with it consistently for a number of years. So you get offered this gig here in Toronto. And by the way, in uh, uh, in the videos that I watched, you say Toronto. You know, you know that, right? I know. I got to. You got to start saying Toronto. 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 Okay, I'm working on it. <laughs> you got to okay. start doing that. Like, okay. if you're here the rest of your life, who knows? <laughs> it's Toronto. Okay. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so what goes down in the Karopkin household? You touched on it a moment ago. What What did Karen say? What What is she like, Karen? Your wife. Uh, Karen keeps me real and, and she's definitely the more pious and the more righteous of the two of us. And she has the common sense that sometimes I lack and she has the human intuition that I sometimes lack. Yeah. She understands people much better than I do. I'm the academic and she's the, the person who's the salt of the earth kind of person. So she really connects with people much better than I do. And when she... When she tells me something about a person or people, yeah. um, I know that she's right. So when I disagree with her, I'm usually wrong. How long have you been married? It'll be 35 years in uh, July. A muzzle tough. Thank you. Many years ago, I wrote an article about my mother. God bless her soul, who was a rabbitson. My father was a rabbi. And I said, a rabbi studies for his accreditation, for his certificate, which is called smicha. A woman loves her man. Uh, a Rebbitson loves her man. She ultimately, though, takes on a position which is very, very challenging, in some ways as challenging as the rabbi. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. But she doesn't have a smicha hanging on the wall. She has the love of her man. Mm, yeah. She has the love of her man, and she also has a certain, well, I mean, there are there are different kinds of Rebbitsons, yeah. you know. I'm sure you, what your mother sounds like was a, a complete partner with your dad. She was. She in was. everything that he did in his pulpit. And that's what my wife is as well. There are other kinds of Rebbitsons who have their own careers. And um, one of my colleagues has a wife who's a, who's, a, who's a physician. Another one has a wife who's a lawyer. Yes. And sometimes they do that for self-preservation and sanity. Um, but my wife is a 50-50 partner in everything I do. I could not do what I do without her. Just embellish on that for a second, because I think it's so important to talk about the woman behind the man, particularly when you're talking about a rabbi. I know. I, I remember when I was a child waking up in the middle of the night when a phone call would come. God forbid somebody was sick. We had a terrible situation in our shul where a husband actually killed his wife. Oh. Yeah, it was terrible. Wow. And my father had to go over to the house. But I distinctly remember as a child watching my mother. She was there the whole time. If she was called upon to go to these homes, she would. She would. Yeah. Yeah. We had a, a young lady a number of years ago who uh, drowned in her own bathtub because she was she had overdosed on pharmaceuticals. And I'm a Kohen, which means that I'm um, by Jewish law, I'm not allowed to go into uh, into the same room as, right. a, as a person who's deceased. And so my wife, Karen, went up, uh, spent a couple of hours wow. with the family, uh, just waiting for the, uh, for the uh, forensics to be done and the coroner to, to, uh, to take care of everything. So that, that's the kind of person she is. What do you say to her when she does stuff like that? Um, <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah. I just say, you know, you're amazing. And I don't know what I would do without you. 
And yeah. I think I think she knows that by now. It's she does thir- know that. It's been 35 years of her pulling me out of the fire. Yeah. So, Rabbi, it, it's very clear from your background, um, especially your academic background, that, you know, you love to think. You're a thinker. You love to develop ideas. Would that be fair? Uh, I think so. I think so. I'm, I'm still... You know how um, there's sometimes a, a melody in your head that you yeah. know is waiting to come out? Yeah. I'm still waiting for that big idea to emerge while I'm coming up with the little ideas. And I'm hoping that one day before I die, I'll have what they call in physics, you know, they call the uh, the the solution for everything. Right. And um, I don't, I'm not there yet, but I'm working on it. Would you say you've had original thoughts? I would say that I'm more of an original thinker than someone who researches other people's ideas. Yeah. 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 So, so, so your background, at least in part, is you went to Nary Israel Yeshiva. In Baltimore. Yeah. I went to Nary Israel Yeshiva here in Toronto. Yeah. That's yeah. the similar thing between well, us. Well, probably in your, in your day. <laughs> yeah. It, your day, there were pro- was Rabbi Weinberg there in your day? No, it was Rabbi Friedler. Rabbi Friedler. You should okay. rest in peace. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. We had Rabbi Malevsky, uh, Rabbi... Uh, what's this, his name? I, I can't remember his name, but yeah. So we both went to Nary's Roll. Uh, okay. Yeah, we share that, yes. So you have your uh, a Master's of Arts degree in Medieval and Jewish Islamic Thought from UCLA Department of Near Eastern uh, Languages and Cultures, Master's of Science degree from the John Hopkins University School for Engineering at the Applied Physics Laboratory. You're an adjunct professor at Muhlenberg College. I was. I was. You were. You were. Well, yeah. what is that, by the way, an adjunct, adjunct I, I professor? Basically, I, I taught Hebrew for a couple of semesters. Right. Okay. So at the you, university. You love to learn, clearly. You love to teach. There's there's videos all over YouTube of you giving shiurim after shiurim, classes out. You love that, right? I do enjoy it. The greatest joy that I have is when I feel that I've communicated an idea yes. that is a little bit more complex and I've been able to break it down into simpler pieces and makes it more digestible for the audience. That's my goal. So knowing this is your passion or at least one of your passions, right? You wake up in the morning. I'm assuming that one of the things you need to do is visit congregational membership who are in the hospital, who aren't feeling well, have someone come into your office who may be having a challenge in terms of their marriage. It's probably difficult for you to get around to the books, isn't it? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's all about balance, yeah. right? I mean, I also have to spend some time exercising every day. I've got to spend time with my family every day. What do you do to exercise? Um, I do about, I have about an hour and a quarter regimen. I'm on the elliptical for about 50 minutes and I do weights and crunches. Are you strong? I don't know. I mean, compared to whom? You know? Have you ever been in a fight? No, I mean not not since I'm a kid. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, right. So, so, so you're spending an awful lot of time with people. Relationships is a big deal, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I understand what you're saying about the balance, but given your druthers, when you retire, will you retire one day? Uh, when we make Aliyah, the goal is to make Aliyah at some point in the future, to continue working in Israel, and then eventually to retire. Yeah. What will you do in your retirement days? Uh, Probably right. Yeah. Yeah, probably. That's the goal. I have a couple more books in me that I haven't, that just don't have the, the uh, soundness of mind, the, the calmness of spirit right now to write. Right. But, but I, I know what I, I know what I want to put on paper. So. Can I ask you what some of it is? Well, I, you know, because I translated and annotated the Kuzari, uh, I think I have another book, which is a Kuzari companion 
to sort of compile a lot of the, th the ideas that I've been able to glean from Rabbi Yehuda Alevi over the years and to write a companion book. Um, I've also, I'm, I got, I've gotten into different authors over the years. I'm really fascinated by some of Jonathan Haidt's writings on the um, political psychology and why people think differently and why people have different political views and religious views and what we do with that and how that lines up with some of the ideas in Torah, especially from Rav Cook, who talks about the different kinds of Jews. And if we would only recognize the value in each and every Jew and what each person brings to the table, no matter how different they are from us, we would have a much greater nation, a homogenous nation that is made up of so many different diverse parts and we would really bring redemption right away. So I want to get to that in a moment. But before we do, I just want to take a step back. So relationships must be a really big deal to you as well. Not only the books, not only the academia, but when you're sitting across again from someone in your shul, a family member, you have to listen. You have to be in the moment. You have to hear what they say. You have to be empathetic and you have to be caring. So I'm, I'm assuming that is this stuff that comes to you naturally? What comes to me naturally is the ability to listen to someone. I've always been a better listener than a talker. Um, I, I sort of the, the people who used to gravitate towards me in friendships were the people who used to have a need to talk a lot because I, I could sit on the phone or sit in front of a person and just nod my head for hours uh, and really understand and process what they were saying. I was always more interested in listening to what other people had to say than what I had to say. So I am a good listener. Um, I'm also sometimes, and sometimes this is not a good thing. Um, I, this is a male trait more than a female trait is that we, we, when we hear that someone has a problem, we try to come up with solutions. Yes, that's true. And there are a lot of times when people are not looking for solutions and I've learned that over the years, but there are times when solutions are helpful for people because sometimes people come to me and they feel like they're stuck in a quagmire that they can't get out of. Yeah. So sometimes I, I try some creative solutions for people and I've helped some people that way. Tell me something. As a rabbi, what is it like sitting with somebody who's going through an incredible crisis? Like what happens inside of you? Um, well, it depends on the situation. Um, and one has to get very invested in that person's life and at the same time know when to create that wall it's um and i that's probably true of anyone who's a therapist anyone who is a social worker you have to be very invested emotionally at the moment and then know when to pull back because if you don't pull back you can fall into an abyss yourself do you take this stuff home i try not to I mean, look, if there's three funerals on a, in a day yeah, right. with all the shiva houses and all the tears, sometimes it's very hard not to bring it home. And I'm sure you remember those days with your own father. I do. Um, but I try my best not to. So, so Rabbi, let's, let's take a look at that for a second. You have a wedding at 12 o'clock. You have a chuppah, another wedding at 3 o'clock. Somebody passes away. It's a later funeral. I don't know if does that happen. Do we have later funerals? Uh, in the summer, you could. Have yeah. you ever been in a late night funeral in Israel? No. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. My my mother was buried in the dark. Yeah. Oh, it's nuts. Anyway, so yeah, yeah. So how do you take your thinking from the simcha, from the joy? 
you know, of marrying two people, which must be beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It must be. Usually, usually you, you, when, yeah. when you when you have a positive feeling about the uh, about the prognosis of the marriage, yes, and, and sometimes you don't. Yeah, <laughs> let's not go there. I'm not going to go there. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself at a graveyard, putting somebody in the ground. Yeah, how do you make that transition in your mind? Mm, well, I, I will tell you this: it's easier to do a funeral when you know you have a wedding to go to afterwards the same day. Yeah. Um, because you recognize it sort of puts things in perspective that there is, it sounds corny, but there is a circle of life and, um, and, uh, as much as, as there's sadness when someone dies, if you know that part of this cycle is that new life comes into the world as old life leaves, you can come, you can better come to terms with the departure when you see the arrival coming in at the same day. Can you always keep it together when you're bearing a child? Oh, no. Not at all. Well, what happens? It's it, First of all, it's a rare occurrence. Um, but there is no way to... I mean, emotionally, it's very difficult. Emotionally, it's very difficult... Um, it depends on my relationship with the family. It depends on the um, on how the family is reacting. There's so many different variables. There are situations of suicide which are very difficult. Yes. Um, and um, will you allow yourself to cry in situations like that? Um, I have in the past. Um, but there are times when I have to withhold the tears based on the circumstances. Yes. And let other people shed the tears. I guess being a rabbi is a little bit like being an athlete, let's say a hockey player in our case, whereby you have to control your emotions very often, right? You can't get angry at a congregant, as an example. Right. Right. Yeah. The emotions, I mean, and any professional has to behave professionally correct um one of my um one of my pet peeves is when some of my colleagues do not behave professionally yeah and that sort of brings the prestige of the profession down a little bit so we all need to behave all rabbis just like all doctors and lawyers and cpas and anyone who's in the service industry has to put on a professional uh front when dealing with their clients, their patients, or their customers. Will you ever call out a colleague if they're acting inappropriately? I have. Have you? I have when it's when I've been directly involved. Yes. Yeah. What will you say? You need to act like a rabbi. I recently said to someone, "Your behavior was completely unprofessional and yeah. unacceptable because it was directly affecting something that I was involved in." How did yeah. they respond? They eventually backed down. Yeah. They, they, they apologized, you know, because I'm not here to make someone feel bad. I'm, yes. I'm here to try and correct someone's errant behavior. So what fascinates me as well is you come from a family where your father, he should be well, Thank God. is a lawyer. Yeah. Well, he's not just a lawyer. He doesn't write contracts about buildings, right? He represents rock and rollers, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Hollywood stars. 
Yeah. Um, I remember when I was growing up, there was a band called Rolls Royce. He represented them. Okay. Yeah, I actually have his resume. I like this, by the way. You were in Los Angeles with him recently, right? Yeah. And you're mm-hmm. sitting with him. Yeah. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, so Avram's going to interview me. I'm going to send him my dad's resume. <laughs> well, yeah. I've, I mean, I've had my dad's resume for quite some time. I love I've, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sitting there and thinking, oh, this is pretty cool. No, because you asked me about my background. I said, here, let, let me get you started. Yeah, no, so it's good. Is, it's yeah. good. I was excited to get it. Yeah. And then I go through it and I read about all these people whom he represented, he was an assistant to general counsel, United Artists Records, United Artists Music Groups. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And again, some of the uh, some of the rock and rollers who were his clients were Bob James, um, the Shirelles. Remember the Shirelles? Sure. Did you know these people? I met some of them. My like dad, my, my dad represented Johnny Cash for a short time. Did he? And uh, he took me to a concert. We went back and met. Johnny and June. That's so cool. Yeah, it was very cool. Yeah. Um, and then, we, you know, we've had different personalities over the house, or I've come to the office and I've met different people. I remember my dad having being woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Remember the band War? Yes, I do. Yeah, Why Can't We Be Friends? Yes, I do. So they, the, one, of the, the, one of the guys in the band had a domestic abuse problem with, it, with his spouse. And police came, arrested him. My dad had to go down to the jail and bail him out at three in the morning. Wow. Uh, you know, so. Sort of like the rabbinical work you do. <laughs> yeah, well, right. But, you know, his congregants, you know, if we want to call them yeah. congregants, a lot less reliable than mine, a lot less uh, trustworthy than mine. One of the things my dad always told me is if you're going to be a lawyer, don't go into entertainment law because the people you represent are not always reliable to pay their bills, you know, yes. because uh, artists, with all due respect, sometimes can be a little flaky. Yeah, well, look at me. <laughs> so I said, with all due respect, my dad represented a band called Megadeth, which is a uh, was a heavy metal band. Yes, I know Megadeth. And um, you know, a lot of these, you know, when you start off as a rock and roll band, you have you have no money, you can't afford a lawyer. So sometimes a lawyer who sees promise in the band will make a deal and he'll say, okay, give me a certain percentage of your of your earnings in ex- in lieu of a uh, of my retainer in lieu of my fees. Right, right. So. My dad did this when they first get started, and then they they went gangbusters. They became really big, and Huge. they decided, we're not going to pay you anymore. Oh. So my dad had to sue them, you know. And so those are the kinds of stories that I grew up with, you know. That's fabulous. Yeah. How yeah. many brothers and sisters do you have? I have an older sister and a younger brother. And where do they live? My sister lives in L.A., and my brother lives in Baltimore. Are you close with them? Um, somewhat, somewhat. We're we're definitely all on good terms. We don't we don't speak as often as we should, though. Are they religious? They're both religious. And yeah. do they come to your synagogue here sometimes? When we have a simcha, when we're like we, when our son gets bar mitzvah or we make a wedding, sure, they've been to my synagogue. Is it nice to have your family in the congregation? It's awesome. It must be nice, right? Yeah, it's yeah. great. It's yeah. a great, great well, feeling. What do your dad and mom say to you about what you do and your success? Do they have a lot of nachas? I think so. Yeah. And we, sh- we should get to my mom to talk about yes, that. Yes, I want to talk about your mom. Yes. Yeah, because my mom and dad come from two totally different worlds. Right. Yeah, so when we talk about, you know, nachas... My mom was on the kinder transport. Her father was a rabbi in Vienna. Yes. And, um, and uh, from a long line, uh, his wife actually was a Horowitz. My mother's mother was a Horowitz from a long line of very, very uh, prominent rabbis in Galicia, which is, you know, uh, uh, eastern and southern Poland. And um, so she... I can, we, we can go through the story, but I'm not sure if you have time. 
but through a series of events, she she was on the kinder transport at the age of six, ends up in England, is raised initially with non-Jews, then gets put into an orphanage for for Orthodox Jewish children, um, and then grows up, makes her way to the United States, meets my dad, who's a traditional Jew, but wasn't completely Shomer Shabbos, Sabbath observant. Yes. And they get together and they made it work. And my mom said, I'll marry you on the condition that you become an Orthodox, completely Orthodox. My dad said, you're worth it. And that's how they raised their family. So they are Orthodox. Yeah, yeah. And I remember days when my dad literally had to go to a club, let's say on a Friday evening, and he would drive up 30 seconds before candle lighting. And we, but he always was home for Shabbos. So he's nuts about your mom? Yeah, I think yeah, you could say You could that. see the romance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Your mom's you. name is Frida. She she wrote a book. Yeah. I just ordered it. Um, and the book's name is Throw Your Feet Over Your Shoulders Beyond the kind, Kinder Transport, right? Right. Right. What what she what is she like your mom? And just as if I were to meet her at a coffee shop, what sort of person is she? My mom is very intelligent, very well read, tough lady, because she's got a very strong personality, and she got that because she had to grow up on her own without parents. And so I was just reflecting with a cousin who's in England, and he said, you know, there were different components of our family who survived the Holocaust. Half of them went bonkers, they went nuts, and the other half became really strong and tough. Those are the only two options. You either totally collapsed as a human being, or you just firmed up, pumped iron, and became a really strong individual. Does your mother talk about those days? She does. And that's really what the book is about. I'm sure the book was very therapeutic for her. How old were you when she started talking to you about it? I don't know. My, my, one of my earliest memories uh, was in 1974 when she got a letter from the, uh, from the Hever Kadisha, which is the Jewish Burial Society in Vienna. Yes. She never knew what happened to her parents, but they, they through Nazi records, they were able to uh, find their bodies in a, in a communal grave, they, they, their hands and feet were tied in the back and they were shot from the back and thrown into a communal grave in a town called Burko in Yugoslavia. And so the Hever Kadisha was able to find the communal grave because of the records. They, trans, they transferred the remains of all of those people to the cemetery in Vienna. And uh, she got a letter confirming what had happened to her parents. And I remember that was the one time that I saw her that she really broke down. Did her, her motherhood, was it impacted by her experiences? Oh, invariably so. Did it come out at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, she didn't have role models about how to parent. She, she was doing this all based on reading Dr. Spock, if you remember him. Sure, of course. Um, he was the only person. The only at. person. But all of, and, you know, she was very much into psychology and trying to understand how everyone's thinking works. And a lot of that came out. And we as parents, each and every one of us makes mistakes as a parent. There are some times when we are more blameworthy than others. Uh, but my mom is not blameworthy at all for the mistakes that she made because she was, <laughs> she was flying without a net. She had no idea what she was doing and yes. she, she did her best. Yeah. And your dad, was he, is he or was he a good dad? Yeah. Excellent dad, but always, uh, always took a back seat to my mom. How so? Well, he um, he was the more 
passive and my mom was the more proactive in the parenting department. My dad was at work a lot, very busy in, in his uh, law practice, and mom was, uh, was taking care of us and making the decisions. You have 10 kids? 10 kids. What, what sort of dad are you? Um, I've evolved as a father. How so? Well, I tried to be a, a tough disciplinarian with my earlier kids, and um, that was due to the fact that I was insecure as a young father. I was a father at 21. Mm-hmm. What, well, married at 19? Married at 20. At 20? Yeah. And made a lot of mistakes. And uh, turning point for us was about 10 years ago when um, one of our boys got a brain tumor and uh, shattered our world. But also, I had to uh, take stock of everything that I was as a, as a human being, especially as a father. And um, really was a transformative experience. And thank God our son is doing okay. So yeah. just just tell me a little bit about, yeah, thank God he's well. Just yeah. tell me about that. When you say you had to take stock. What, what, what does that mean? Um, I came to the realization that I was more concerned about um, disciplining my children and making sure that they would be good than developing a relationship with them. I see. Yeah. And so I focused, I've tried to focus more on the relational aspects of parenting than uh, trying to get my kids to do stuff. Do you think you get their essence? Do you think that you get their souls? I mean, you have 10 of them. Yeah. Um, and each one of them is so different from the other. Yeah. Each one of them. Um, I hope I do. I'm not sure if I totally get each and every one of them, but I, I, I strive every day to, to understand a little bit more. So how do you do this? 800 families... I'm sure you get an awful lot of calls. You have your classes to give, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you have 10 children. How, how do you manage that? I have one child, and I'll tell you something. I'm overwhelmed, and I don't do very much. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of it is having a very capable wife. Yeah. Um, social, um, you know, WhatsApp and FaceTime and all that stuff is fantastic. Um, because it lets us keep um, in contact. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. Children, like any uh, children, your adult children, some of them have a greater need for a, a relationship and some of them have a, a lesser need for a relationship. And I try, to, I try to attend to each one's needs as the best as I can. And I'm sure invariably that I could do more, but we, we try our best. When won't you take a congregation... Uh, a membership of the shul, when won't you take their call having to do with your children? Uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm at a child's graduation or a PTA meeting or something like that, I'm not going to interrupt something that I'm doing for my child for, yes. for, for anyone. Yeah. I'll turn my phone to silent and uh, we'll ignore the calls. Do you have to come back from vacations? My parents always did. Um, there have been times, but they're rare. They're rare. Because I do have an, an associate rabbi who is able to fill in for me when I'm gone. But for those rare instances where I need to be there, yeah. But it's, it's very rare. It hasn't happened in recent memory. So inside, are you, are you a calm person? Do you have much anxiety? Because I'm looking at your life. I'm looking at your resume. I'm looking at your day-to-day -day schedule in my head. 
I, I couldn't do it. I ran a small organization and I had troubles. Um, and once I stepped down as CEO, I was very happy that I didn't have stress. So are, are you basically a very calm man? I don't spend a lot of time on self-reflection. Um, and so I can't tell you everything that's going on inside. Um, but I guess that I have the ability to, I wouldn't call it multitask, but I can stay focused on one task at a time and do my best to see it through. Right. That doesn't right. mean that I don't drop balls. I mean, there are times when I just get so overwhelmed and something falls through the cracks and I feel bad about it, but then I got to move on. I'm assuming that you're pretty efficient at what you do because it's a very large shul and there must be a lot going on. Um, so here, I got a question for you. You're going to like this one. I went through the website, the shul's website, and I'm thinking to myself, how much does the rabbi really know about this shul? How much are you really involved? Because it's a very big shul, right? Yeah, started, it's a big shul. It's huge. Started a number of, number of years ago by the philanthropist Joseph Tannenbaum. Correct. Uh, and he built a magnificent edifice Yeah. with room after room after room. I find it very hard sometimes when I come for a simcha, for a celebration, to find my way around. It took me about a year. Did it? before I stopped getting it's, lost. Isn't it funny that way yeah. where you have to mm -hmm. be in a certain room, you make a left, and you go, God, I'm on the other side of the shul. Right, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so I have a question for you. It's kind of silly, but I want to see how much you know about your shul, okay? Go. When is your shul's babysitting class? It's one of the nights of the week. I couldn't tell you what night it but is. But you know about it? Yes, I do. It's yeah. run by Rich Winkler, who's the head of our youth department, who's an outstanding guy. Is he? Yeah. He it really, he does an amazing job. Good for you. Yeah. What percentage of the overall cost for the mikvah are covered by the user fees? It's on the <laughs> website, Rabbi. It's on the website. Uh, I believe you. I, what would you say? Just guess. Throw out a number. Uh, 75%. Yeah, pretty close. It's 60%. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I love the fact that the previous rabbi, Rabbi Taub's wife, who was Judy, I love the fact that there's a hall named after her. I think that's very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, she tr she died tragically young. Yeah, she did. She was beloved by the entire congregation. Yeah, so it's the least the least that the congregation could do was to memorialize her in that way. And there's a and uh, uh, Rabbi Taub, God bless him, and yes. should she'll live to 120. Oh man, he's actually coming to our dinner this Sunday, our 38th 38th anniversary dinner. Um, we have the rabbi's classroom is named after Rabbi Taub. It's very nice. Yeah, yeah. what's it like when the emeritus comes? Do you, do you kind of take a step back? What, what do you have to do? You, you know something? Um, I love Rabbi Tao. Yeah. He is an outstanding human being. He's an outstanding rabbi. I learn something new from him every time he's here. Um, and so um, I enjoy it when he's here. I enjoy seeing him in action. And I enjoy seeing... He's, he create, creates a little magic every time he gets up to he speak. He does. Yeah. I know Rabbi Tao. He does. Yeah. When rabbis are together, do they toss ideas of Torah back and forth? Sometimes. Yeah. But more often than not, we uh, we commiserate about experiences more than anything else. Experiences as a rabbi? Oh, yeah. And I've actually asked them his advice many times about certain issues, certain personalities. Absolutely. He's been very helpful. So we talked about your growing up years, what it was like to grow up in, in, in the home of a lawyer who was dealing with rock and rollers. Uh, your mother, who's a Holocaust survivor, you have a brother, you have a sister. 
and then you go through all this whole academic uh, journey, and then one day, I guess, you decide, hey, I want to be a rabbi? Well, it was, um, it was a slow-moving decision that sort of happened organically. It was when I was in my early 20s. I was, my wife and I were living in San Diego, um, and we were part of a kollel, which was headed by none other than Rabbi Eliezer Breidowitz, who is now also of Toronto, yes. who's the dean of uh, the Yeshiva Darche Torah. So he and I go back a long way. And there was a, we, uh, as a kol, as a community kolel, our function was to do outreach to not just the Orthodox community, but to Jews who were on the periphery to try to share with them the beauty of Judaism, of our Torah. And it became clear, I was approached at one point by a group of these people that were coming to my classes, we're too far to walk to the synagogue mm -hmm. and we don't want to drive anymore. Will you help us start a, a synagogue, a little shul, a little uh, shtibel? And so, you know, after giving it a lot of thought and consulting with the right people, including Rabbi Breidowitz, we gave it a go. And that was sort of my entree into the rabbinate. It was, uh, it's the young Israel of San Diego, which is still going on. It's in a little community called San Carlos in the suburb of San Diego. Yes. How was it? first off. Ah, it's great. Was it nice? It was great. We could barely get a minion. And I remember standing outside <laughs> the uh, the shul on a Shabbos morning saying, uh, hey, are you Jewish? Do you mind making the minion? I also remember one Rosh Hashanah where someone accidentally turned off the lights and we brought in a guy, uh, asked him if he wouldn't mind turning on the lights and he turned on the lights. And then as he was waving goodbye, he said, good yantif, everyone. So it was, you know, we have a lot of, you know, a lot of stories like that. So uh, I remember when I started Via Hafta, uh, which is a Jewish humanitarian organization. They were the first five years or so were absolutely romantic. I, I would tell uh, a friend of mine, I would say, you know, you see that that coat hanger over there, or where we hang our coats, or you see that Aztecian clock on the wall. That is the first clock, the first coat hanger of the first Jewish humanitarian organization in Canada. <laughs> Every single thing shone. It was so exciting. You weren't bogged down in administration. And even if you were, it was okay because you realized that you had a mission at hand. You had a task. And it's something that emanated from inside of you. I was just so happy those years. Was that your experience? Yeah. There's something about what they call the hungry years. The hungry years, yeah. You know, where just like you're just scraping by, but you know that you're doing something that's exciting and you're full of energy and you feel a vitality. And as you get older you know, things, you get better at, at what you started off doing. Invariably, you, you're in any career that you're in for 10 to 20 years, you 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 do become better. You become a better speaker as That's a right. rabbi. You mm -hmm. become a better uh, pastor and, and so forth. But some of the initial energy sort of wanes. You, there's a sort of sometimes a cynicism that sets in. And that's what takes work is the work is chadesh, we say in the... In the uh, in the in the Psalms, Chadesh Yamenu Kikedem, renew our days as of old, mm -hmm. which is, you know what, I pine for the good old days when everything was new, everything was exciting, and I'm looking to regain that passion. The tie the eye of the tiger, yeah. as they, you know, as they call yeah. it. Uh, I, I totally concur with you. That's exactly how I feel nowadays. And I work really hard as an example on this podcast. Uh, and I try to find that deep, deep excitement, you know, that thing that really propels me forward. It's there, but it's much different than it was when I was younger. Sure. Much different. Yeah. Much different. Um, 
so you have a very interesting outlook on Torah. I think it's uh, very, you're very firm in your beliefs. You're a strong Jew. Would you agree with that? No, not at all. Oh, you're not. You wouldn't agree. No. I, Why is um, that? Uh, because I used to be firm in my beliefs. And as I get older, I have come to the realization that I know less and less. Yeah. And I can therefore be certain of less and less. I, I recently, about a, about a year and a half ago, I gave a long sermon about a book that was written by Peter Berger, who was a sociologist who recently passed away. It was called In Praise of Doubt. Yes. And one of the things that I think is problematic within Orthodox Judaism, it, um, scholastically, pedagogically, is that young people who... Um, sometimes challenge their teachers are met with a certainty that the teachers feel they need to project to the students in order to keep them strong. And what I've discovered over the years is just the exact opposite is true. Sometimes the best answer that a student is looking to hear is, I don't know that answer to that either. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. bothers me. Mm -hmm. Can you give an example of how that might play out? Well, you know, um, there are so many areas, you know, when it comes to Bible criticism, where there are certain indications that the Bible may have had multiple authors. When it comes to certain gaps in our history, um, where the transition between the canonized Bible and rabbinic Judaism transitioned, there's a lot of mystery and there's a lot of things that we're not sure about in the history of Judaism, in the history of the formation of rabbinic Judaism. Um, and for some people, those questions can be shattering. Right. But, but for me, it's just the opposite is true, is that they confirm for me that nothing is simple in this faith that we have called Judaism. It is so complex. And despite its complexity and despite the sometimes contradictory ideas that exist within it, it works and it has worked for millennia. It has been the key to our survival as a people. It has been the key to the, not only the longevity of the Jewish people, but our productivity, not only our survival, but our thriving as a culture. And we really have been a light to the world. It's a source of tremendous pride, even when I don't fully understand everything that's going on. Have you ever been close to giving it up? No. No, actually not. Um, there are times when I have disputations with myself. You know, there's a famous story in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, about Jacob and Esau yes. having a wrestling match. Or really, it's the angel of Esau, is what the, the way that the Torah describes it. And the Torah says that they wrestled all night, and the angel couldn't get the best of Jacob. But it was a tough fight. And finally, in the morning, the angel says to him, let me go, because morning has, has, has come, morning has broken. Morning has broken, good one. And it's time for me to go. And to me, I, I, the way that I've tried to explain that whole story is that what Jacob was going through was an existential crisis of faith. He was wrestling with an entity, whether it was inside or external is irrelevant, 
but he was wrestling with an, an, an entity that was trying to pull him away from his faith. And when the morning breaks and it's time to move on, the questions still remain, but I got to go to Minion and put on my tefillin. Yes. So it's that consistency. It's that every day I have the same routine that has a proven track record. My questions will linger, but if I allow those questions to dismantle the way I live my life, then I'm going to look back on a life that has been inconsistent, irregular, and ultimately unsuccessful. And that's the reason why it's important to get that message out, which is you can have all the questions you want. Continue asking those questions. The questions are good and they will persist. But at the end of the day, be proud of how you lived your life. Is there any halacha? Is there any Jewish law that causes you a lot of pain and you just don't get? You just don't get? I'll, I'll give you a context to this. Yeah. I know many, many, especially men who are homosexuals and many Jewish men who are homosexual. And these guys suffer a lot. Yeah. Because of what Judaism says, which is that what they practice, who they are, is an abomination. And at the end of the day, I have such a, a hard time with the fact that the Torah would say that. It's hurt a lot of people. And knowing people who are homosexual, I just don't see it. Yeah. Why would it be an abomination? Okay, you don't like it. It's not nice. It's not something that may perpetuates the world. Yeah. But an abomination? That's such a strong word, isn't it? It's a very strong it's word. It's an English word. It's a King James word. I don't know if that's what the Torah means when it says uses the word to'eva. Okay. To'eva, I don't think, means abomination. It just means it's something that God says is antithetical to why I made the world. I made the world for procreation, and there are certain behaviors that just don't fit into that function. They may be gratifying for the individual. They may f fill an individual's life with purpose, but they still may not fit in God's ultimate overarching plan for what he wants to accomplish. I think that's what the word to'eva means, and not an, an abomination. And you want to know something? The truth is it does bother me because I deal with guys who are gay and have a really tough time reconciling that with their desire to have a relationship with God. Um, at the end of the day, just like we're not going to check people's tzitzis, we're not going to check whether you have car keys in your pocket on Shabbos, yes. we're not going to check you at the door to find out what your sexual orientation is. And I do believe in being as inclusive as possible. What do you tell gay people who come to you and say, Rabbi, just, I don't feel that connection to this community because I'm gay and people know it and they're not so nice to me? Yeah, well, that's not God's fault, is it? That's not God's fault. But no. what do you tell them? Tell them, hold your head up high. You're a good person. And there are going to be people who just don't get it. They don't, they don't know you like I know you and like your friends know you. You are a special person. Don't let, pe don't let people who don't know you, who have, who have no idea who you really are, yes. Don't, yes. don't take their opinions into account. Um, are there other things that bother me? Yeah. I mean, the whole Laguna issue. The process whereby a divorce has to be initiated by a man only and the woman is the recipient and she can't initiate the get. Um, 
it bothers me in the way that it's implemented in today's world. That's, just, again, sociological issue, which I don't ascribe to God in any way. Another issue, and you and I have had a bit of an email going back and forth on this, is organ donation. Yeah. When I die, I shall live to 120. Amen. I'm going to donate my organs because yeah. I can save six lives or more. And if I can do that, I'm going to do that. The thing I don't get is Judaism is all about saving lives. Right. You can do anything within Judaism, anything. Eat pork. Right. If one has to. Not keep Shabbat if one has to, to save a life. This I don't get. Well, Judaism does sanction organ donation. To some extent. Well, to the extent that you don't kill the patient in order to harvest the organs. Nor as if the patient is already deceased, then absolutely 100% Judaism sanctions organ donation. There's a debate among, of the, uh, among the rabbis what defines that moment of death. It's interesting. You wrote me on this. It, 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 just explain this. If they're, if they're organs that work when the heart has stopped, is this how it goes? Yeah. I mean, everyone agrees. All the rabbis agree that once there's been a cessation of heartbeat, whatever organs you can harvest at that time after the heart has stopped beating, 100% if you can save lives, do it. So there are certain organs, and we're, the technology is getting better, by the way. Oh, okay. And okay. not only is the technology getting better about harvesting organs post-heartbeat, but we're also starting, you know, in Israel, they just printed a heart on a 3D printer. Did That's you read about that? Fascinating stuff, yeah. yes. So this whole discussion may be... Um, maybe a non sequitur in five years from now, maybe, maybe totally moot in five years when we won't need to harvest organs anymore because we'll just be printing them. Oh, interesting point. And that yeah. will be okay. Yeah. And we'll be also making uh, um, synthetic meat from pig cells. And who knows, maybe the rabbis will come out and say it'll be kosher then. I mean, we're living in an amazing world, in an amazing we world. We absolutely are, yeah. 100%. And Judaism is fluid. Yeah. Yeah. With, with all this fluidity and all this openness you have to changes and, and recognizing that, uh, that life is so complex and it's not easy to figure out and you have problems with some halachas, a very honest approach to life in Judaism, how do you fit into this world which is so now black and white? I'm going to guess, tell me if I'm wrong, but of the 800 members you have in your shul, there's probably an awful lot who resent your openness to complexity, who are not comfortable with the idea that not everything is absolute in the Torah as we think it is. Yeah, there are people, there are certain personality types who are very uncomfortable with the space between black and white. Right. And I used to be like that when I was younger. I felt that the world is black and white, the Torah is black and white, it's black ink on white parchment and that's just the way it is. Just the way it is. You get older, you get a little bit more wisdom, um, and you understand that the space or that the, 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 the place between the black and the white is really most of the space. Um, people are uncomfortable with that because there's something reassuring about someone who tells you it's black and white. Very much. And that's why there are a lot of Jewish speakers today who actually spout absolute drivel, but have thousands of followers. It's true. <laughs> right? It's very true. Okay. Israel. Yeah. Tell me about your relationship with Israel and your synagogue's relationship with Israel. 
um, my relationship with Israel has only become more enriched and deeper since moving to Toronto. We view this as sort of like the last stop before Aliyah. Yes. And, um, and it's because specifically of the Bayit congregation, which is so Zionistic and has such a high rate of Aliyah and of young people who, after they go to uh, yeshiva or to seminary, will enlist in the IDF, which is just amazing. It is it's amazing. mind-blowing. Um, and I'm so proud, so proud of these young people. Uh, my relationship with Israel is also a product of my relationship with the Kuzari, because Rabbi Yehuda Halevi is sort of the uh, poster child for uh, religious Zionism. Yes. He's the first great sage to speak so passionately about Zion, about the land of Israel. And he spent his life actually making his way towards the land of Israel. He, he ended up spending the last two months of his life making Aliyah and died shortly thereafter. But you can read in every word that he writes about just his yearning to be part of that sort of centralized place where the divine presence is more palpable, the land of our people, the land which has innate holiness, something where he, for him, even though it's a metaphysical concept, he was able to concretize it in his own mind and in his own life to a point where it was like trying to get to a, a loved one that was separated by a distance that he needed to parse. And he just finally made it at the end of his life. And it's such a romantic story, the Kuzari. Um, Israel today is not that distant relative that we have to travel through deserts and oceans in order to access. You just hop on a plane and you're there yes. in a matter of hours. And so we have less of an excuse today more than ever in the existence of the Jewish people to continue our existence in the diaspora. How do you feel in Israel when you're there? You step off the plane, you walk outside into the streets. You feel like you're home. Can you breathe? Yeah. Breathe an, easily? Yeah. You feel like you're home. Yeah. This is, this is my home. I feel like everyone is, uh, is my cousin, and there's a sense of tremendous comfort where you can just be yourself as a Jew. It's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. And just like when you're at home, you have that sibling who annoys you and that sibling <laughs> who makes you laugh. Exactly, yeah. And that sibling who makes you cry. Right. There's all kinds. Everybody has a magic place, I think, in Israel. Some people will talk about the Ariz Mikvah, which is freezingly cold in yeah. the north of Toronto, in the north of Israel. Some people swear by the, the Kotel, the wall. Do, do you have a magical place you go to? Uh, no. Actually, I just, I love all of the flavors. I love Yerushalayim, the city of Jerusalem. I love Tel Aviv. What do you love about Jerusalem? Uh, just the fact that you're walking through a city that your ancestors walked down. Yeah, right. And that, has, it, that is so rich with the ghosts of the past in a really good way. Um, I love the north. I love the Galil. It's beautiful. I love the Golan. I love going up to the Syrian border. Yes. Um, I love going to the beach, to the Mediterranean. I love going to the Jordan River. There's so many places. I mean, what about I, the desert? Um, I'm not so much a desert guy. Really? Yeah. Being from California. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm more of a beach guy than a desert guy. We have both in California. 
but it's all good. It's all good. I really, the truth is I love the people more than I love the land. And um, uh, even though culturally I'm very much an American. Yes. And I think the transition is going to be tough um, to get through a lot of the bureaucracy, but it's getting easier for Olim, as they say today. What do you love about the people? They're, they're, they're real. They're truthful. They're honest. Um, and sometimes annoyingly so. It's true. But, Absolutely. But they will be straight with you. And also, they will, if someone's upset with you, they'll let you know and they're not going to stab you in the back, smile to your face, and then try and kill you when you, the moment you turn your back. Yes. Israelis yeah. are very straight. Yeah. So here you're a pretty big fish, especially in Toronto, especially in the Orthodox community. What I've heard from people who have gone from Toronto who were big fish here, that they go there and, to simplify the point, they're just like everybody else. How do you feel about that? Oh, what a great idea. You, yeah, it is uh, a good idea. I would love to. When the time comes, it'll be a good transition for that, I, I hope. I'm looking forward, you know, one of the things your father may have told you is that being a rabbi of a community is like living in a fishbowl. Yes. Very much so. And um, there's a, a certain uh, gratification of being a big fish. But once you've done it for a while, you're ready to um, dissolve into the scenery. Can you hide at all? Anywhere? If I go out of town, I can. Yeah. Not, not if I stay in Toronto. In Toronto. There you go. Yeah. You've transitioned during the course yeah. of the show. <laughs> but are there ever situations where you go away and then all of a sudden in the distance you'll see one of your members? <laughs> I remember that happened to my parents. Yeah. My mother would get yeah. so upset. Yeah. My mother more than my father, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sure. Sure it happens. But everything happens for a reason. Yes, it does. Yes, yeah. it does. We're living in a time right now where anti-Semitism is up dramatically. And unfortunately, we've seen over the last month or two uh, a couple of shuls where a shooter has come in and killed our people. Lori Kay, whom you, I believe you spoke about in, uh, in California, was killed. And of course, Pittsburgh. You wrote a lot about a particular woman there who was from Toronto in your blog. You wrote very beautifully about her. You said, although she didn't practice the type of Judaism that we practice, in other words, orthodoxy, she was a fervently passionate Reformed Jew right. who drove a particular survivor every single day to shul. I thought that was beautiful that you wrote. I thought that was very beautiful. Well, thank you. I mean, it's not my own words. It's um, We're talking about Joyce Feinberg. Of Joyce blessed, Feinberg, that's right. Of yeah. blessed memory. Grew up in Toronto. Her brother, Dr. Robert Libman, is a member of the Bayat. Yes. Um, and all the information that I, I mean, I, I knew Joyce peripherally. I knew her because I was at her mother's Shiva and we got to know each other during her Shiva when she, when she was sitting Shiva just a couple of years ago for uh, Bob and Joyce's mother. Uh, just an, an extraordinary human being. Um, and she was the type of person who was very embracing of her Orthodox nieces and nephews and went totally out of her way to make them feel comfortable in her home. Um, and the, uh, the family told a story that um, she bought them a toy. She bought one of her great nieces or nephews a toy. 
and then later realized after she had ordered it on Amazon that it was battery operated and felt bad that they wouldn't be able to play with the toy on, on Shabbos. So she gave money to her niece and said, please buy this child another gift that they can play with on Shabbos because I wasn't thinking when I bought the toy. Yes, I saw that. You know, if all of us, whether you're Orthodox, Reform, conservative, doesn't matter. But that kind of mindfulness, that kind of sensitivity to another human being, to me, that's what gets you into the Garden of Eden after you pass from this world. Yes, It's not how many... Uh, how many blessings necessarily that you said, but it's how you treated your fellow human being. Are you, a f are you frightened about wh who could come through the front door of the Bayat Synagogue? I wouldn't use the word frightened. I am concerned. And we are taking uh, security measures very seriously. We are tightening our security every single day. And we just had a major meeting about it last night in our shul. Yes. And uh, we just have to tighten our, t our, um, our perimeter, make it a more secure place, give people more reassurances that we've tightened our security, um, and leave the rest up to the Almighty. Because, you know, you go through Europe today, you go to th through some of the synagogues and their fortresses, but when it's time, it's time. And that's true for any of us. We, we have to do our share to protect our people. You know, never again is not just the tagline. We're going to fight and we're going to make sure that we remain strong. Um, but we also have to resign ourselves to the fact that we all have a time that's allotted to us by our creator. And we have to accept that too. I am very critical of our leadership. And I'm very critical of our people in terms of our response to anti-Semitism. I think that we've invested billions of dollars into Holocaust education with very little responsibility attached to it. Very often, young people will travel abroad and they'll go on Israel programs or Eastern European programs, visit the camps with no obligation whatsoever upon their return to become a member of something within the Jewish community which will help build our people, but more so help secure our people. And I think the phrase never again and Holocaust education in terms of the films and the lectures and so on has become almost entertainment. We almost feel good about feeling bad. And I'm really nervous, and I'm wondering how you feel about this that when there is anti-Semitism going on on the campuses, do those same young people turn up to fight on behalf of the Jewish people? From what I understand, the answer is no. When I'm on social media and something of an anti-Semitic nature happens, the response so often is, oh, somebody has to do something about this. And I don't see our leadership stepping up. With all due respect, you know I'm very fond of you, I've criticized the rabbis. Where are you rabbis? Why aren't you strategizing? Why isn't the state of Israel sitting down with you and our federation and these organizations who are responsible for fighting anti-Semitism, creating a plan that each, and each Jew, man, woman, and child can be part of? When are we going to start protecting ourselves and ensuring that we do it in a cogent, thoughtful fashion? What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Yes, there is. Um, Realistically speaking, there's no trip to Poland that's going to be so strong that it's going to have a transformative effect on all of the people who go. I think that a lot of people are stirred emotionally when they go to Poland. They understand what happened. And it's important to give them that experience. The exception will be those people who are transformed to the point where they want to actually take a leadership role within the Jewish community. That's the minority of people. We have to be um, realistic about that. We also have to be realistic about what we can expect from the different constituent leaders of the Jewish community. One of the problems that you point to is that there's very little cooperation uh, between the various different uh, bigwigs in the Jewish community because everyone wants their own little power base and people view, you know, look, we have a dozen different organizations that are fighting BDS just in Toronto alone. Yes. Um, And each one of them wants to take credit for what's going on. And so why is there no central address for getting our act together? Because everyone wants to do their own thing. It's very difficult uh, for us to have a sense of um, unified leadership on any issue because we're a stiff-necked people. It's hard for us to work together. To our credit, though, I will tell you this. We're, you know, compared to what um, the Muslim community is doing, we're way ahead as far as being able to get our act together. There's not even a concept of a federation within the Muslim community. And there are twice as many Muslims in Canada today as there are Jews. Yes. Um, But we are... We are light years ahead in our sense of infrastructure. And Canada, to its credit, especially Toronto, uh, is far advanced over any other North American community in the United States. So you're right. There's a lot to criticize. Um, There's also a lot for us to be proud of. I serve as a board member of the Federation currently. um, And there's a lot to criticize, but there's also a lot to say, hey, these guys are doing really good stuff. Well, you're a good man. (laughs) <laughs> uh, no, you are. And I'm happy that you are where you are, because I used to sit on the board of the Canadian Jewish Congress, Southern Ontario region, and I got off because I remember someone standing up and saying the greatest thing about birthright is that the children have no responsibility. And this is a person who's very auspicious in nature and his leadership. And I looked at him, I said, would you repeat that, please? Because I don't understand what you just said. And uh, I'm worried about our people. I really am. And I am because I don't think we're doing what we... We talk a really good game, this whole thing about never again. I'm not saying definitively. I don't want to be black and white here. You're right. There is great leadership. But by and large, I think that uh, most Jews are kind of waiting for someone to step up and say, hey, this is the plan. Here's what we need to do. There is going to be, uh, let's say, in each and every school, each and every Jewish school and Talmud Torahs, there's going to be uh, uh, classes on how one should defend themselves. This is where we need to go if, God forbid, there is a crisis. Um, This is how we align ourselves with the police. I think we should have showmares. I think we should have our own personal sort of security group of people within our shuls who travel the streets at night so that this, the, the, the swastikas, which are being scrawled all over Jewish membership, Jewish people's uh, garages and so on, won't happen. That's terrifying for a lot of people. I'd like to see that. 
I would like to see town, town hall meetings at the various different shuls where people can step up and say, yes, I want to plug myself into security. I want to plug myself into creating relationship with the non-Jew who likes the Jewish people. And it's not happening. I don't think so. so I hear you. I'm you worried. Give, you've given me some good things to, we'll uh, talk to about think it. about it. Okay. Okay. So we're going to wrap up in a few minutes. I'm really enjoying this, by the way. I'm great. So, I'm so, so am I. I'm so happy you're here. I really Thank am. You. Yeah. It's great to be here. I, explain what this means. The institute. This is what you said. The institutional aspects of communal Judaism are often constraining. For so many Jews today, the synagogue can be the place that they find spiritually stifling. That's why rabbis must always explore new informal and innovative venues for finding God. What did you mean by that? What I mean by that is that when you're familiar with a shul, with a synagogue, because you go there week in and week out, there's a certain comfort to it. But if you're really looking for a place to get spiritually elevated, sometimes a synagogue is the last place oh. that, that will provide that for you. Oh. Um, because either it's foreign or because you look around you and you see that the people that are supposed to be engaged are not engaged. And you, where you're looking for role models, sometimes you find people who are the opposite of role models. Yeah. You know, look, I've said it, I've said it a number of times. They say there's an old saying that a hospital is the worst place to get cured. Yes. A school is the worst place to get an education. And a synagogue is the worst place to get a spiritual uplift. Right. But it's in the, it's the only institutional place that we have that is dedicated for that religious experience. But what we have to remind ourselves and our congregants and, and Jews in general is that if you're looking to reserve your spiritual experiences to be relegated to the synagogue, you're making a big mistake. Mm -hmm. The spiritual highs that you're going to experience in life more likely will take place outside of the synagogue if you will allow them to occur. When you go to the beach and look at the sunset, speaking like a California boy, yes. or when you um, when you see um, the birth of a of a new grandchild or child, or when you see them lowering a parent into the yes. into the ground, um, those are the moments where the calling is the greatest to respond to the stirrings of your soul. The synagogue tries to tries its best to create spiritual opportunities but they're spiritual opportunities that happen in organic ways not that we have to try and create through bricks and mortar do you talk to god sometimes how do you talk um, in your head uh sometimes and sometimes when um i'm in the midst of my uh, shimon esrei in my uh, silent prayer yeah <laughs> I, I i take a very long time because I have a lot of things to uh, to pray for. Is, it would be a discussion. Uh, how does it work? Who is God to you? Um, <laughs> I know it's near the very, end. Very, very tough question. Who is God to me? Um, he is the entity that has allowed me for some mysterious, unknowable reason to communicate with him like he's my father when he is much more than that. And that's about all I can know about about him is that he is unknowable but he wants me to treat him like he's knowable. And therefore I approach him as a knowable father. And I ask him for things that would really be beneficial and hopefully part of his plan as much as they're part of my plan. So you'll actually ask for things. Yeah, absolutely. Health? Um, for, for various people. Yes. 
I ask him for shiduchim, you know, to make matches for some of the young ladies in my community. Oh, do you? Yeah. And for uh, some of my own sons who, uh, you know, are looking for that special girl. When they get matched up, do you see that as God responding to you? Um, I think so. I mean, I, I'd like to think that the answer is always yes. Um, that because God is always responding. He's either responding yes or no. Right. You know. And if they don't get matched up? That's also a response. Okay. Okay. Do you think you're doing a good job in life? Are you proud of yourself? Uh, uh, I think I have a big ego, but I am not particularly proud of myself. I, I will not allow myself the luxury of self-reflection and sort of looking at myself and saying, how am I doing? It's not my job. It's the job of the people around me to either uh, feel good about the work I'm doing or to be critical of it. That's just the way I view it. Would you go into therapy? Have you been in therapy? Um, I have, but very, very, very minimal. Well, do you think you know who you are? Um, it's a great question. I think I have enough knowledge that I need to have about myself to be functional and to be productive. Um, I think that I would benefit from more self-awareness, but I'm also concerned that I don't want to become overly indulged with myself. And I, I, I know people who live more in themselves than they live yeah. for the people around them, and I don't want to become that person. Well, what's one of your biggest dreams for yourself as you move forward in life? Um, what would you really like to accomplish? <laughs> Uh, like I like I said a little while ago, to come up with that big solution yeah, right. for everything. Right. Um, I'd like to be able to unify the Jewish people. I'd like to see the Jewish people become more unified. I'd like to eradicate any darkness within myself. I'd like to eradicate sometimes the the uh, the animus that I feel towards some people, and turn that into love. And I and I try to work on that. Those are the kinds of things I want to accomplish, both for the world and for myself. And 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 what's your next book going to be about? So we talked about that about the Kuzari. Kuzari companion, right? And also about um, learning how to appreciate and respect all the different kinds of Jews in the world. Um, right. And then there might be maybe some sermons and some classes that will be transcribed, like from Pirkei Avot, the Ethics of the Fathers, or some sermons. We may do that as well. Would someone who's not religious? Be comfortable in your shul? Ooh. Like if I came up there, would I be comfortable? Uh, you'd be comfortable with me. I know that. You'd be comfortable with a lot of people in the shul, and there would be a number of people who would embrace you. There would also be people who would just totally ignore you. Yes, that happens in and, every shul. And, and the question then would be, would that make you comfortable or uncomfortable? Um, because people are people. And... Uh, I'd like to think that we have exceptional people in our shul who are really good people. Yes. But some of them are just um, tired at the end of the week and just want to do their thing in the shul and don't want to be the ambassadors. And then there are other people who get such joy from welcoming a strange face. We have all different kinds. So do you both have very, very ultra-religious Jews in your synagogue as well as people who do not keep Shabbat? Do you have both? 
Well, yeah, we have those. Though, and somewhere but, in the middle? But those are on the periphery. The mainstream are what we would call, I guess, for lack of a better term, modern Orthodox. Okay. Which is sort of people who are part of the secular culture, but also uh, meticulously observant in Orthodoxy. You don't mention Tikkun Olam in your mission statement, but is it inherent to keeping the laws of the Torah, repairing the world? Yeah, being a light unto the nations is the way the I, would, I would okay. phrase it. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, thank you so much for doing this interview. Avram, thank you. Keep up all the good work that you're doing. Oh, I appreciate that. And you too. Keep up all your great work. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So you have been listening to Rabbi Daniel Korobkin on Hat Radio. This is our 19th episode. I would ask you, please, listen, listen to the entire interview, break it up if you need to, and share it. Because the goal of this podcast is really to speak to people who have an interesting narrative, as you do. And uh, to listen to it very closely and to have those aha moments where you say, yes, yes, I have a similar thought about God or I have a similar thought about Judaism. I have these complex ideas that I've had a problem, you know, unraveling. And in your interview today, some of this stuff came up and it was very, very helpful. So I'm hoping that the, the podcast helps our community grow. And when I say our community, I don't I don't only mean the Jewish people. I mean, the world in which we live, we're all creations of God. And, uh, and I believe very strongly that a positive podcast can make a huge difference in people's lives. God knows there's enough stuff out there which is not positive in our day and age. So we're doing our very best to bring to you, I, I guess, the light and the joy of life, right? Amen, brother. Amen. So thank you for listening. We will be back soon. You have been listening to Hat Radio. It is the show that schmoozes. <laughs> and God bless. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned, keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been. What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the hat In the hat Put it all in the hat